0: The Literate Caveman, Episode 16, The Logic of Failure, Planning, Labels, and Automatic Unconscious Patterns. Welcome to The Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topic of mindset in general. I'm your host, Chad Blake, and today we are going to continue our review of The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. In our last episode, we examined some ways in which people have a difficult challenge predicting patterns over time. We talked about three studies, one involving a faulty refrigeration unit, one in which participants tried to predict the population growth or decrease between a prey population of sheep and a predator population of hyenas, and finally, a study in which the participants were tasked with using a predatory wasp population to control the death's head moth population, to provide the maximum benefit to a cotton crop while having the least impact on a fig crop, which was the moth's food source. Today, we are diving deeper into the planning process and discussing some ways in which we can narrow our focus as we select the best strategies for dealing with complex problems. In Chapter 6, Dorner outlines the planning process. Normally, the planning process begins with some form of a goal. It might be a rough goal such as I want to own a business, or it might be more specific, such as I want to purchase a specific existing business on 6th Street where I have been a customer for years. Sometimes, as you go through your process, you will discover that our first goal is not really what you are after, and you might need to make adjustments. You might decide that rather than owning a business, you might just want to be a silent partner in a business, or when you do your due diligence on that business you think you want on 6th Street, You may discover that the property has a new landlord, and they are planning on raising the rent to a point where the margins will be so tight it may not be a good business investment. As Dorner puts it, we may need to observe the system in question for quite a while before we can make any decisions. You will probably never have all the information you can use, and if you try to wait until you do, there is a danger your goal will remain a goal, or just an idea, and have no action behind it. You do want to take some time to observe the system you are interacting with, try to understand the variables involved, gather information on the present state of the system, get an idea of how the system is behaving now so you have an idea of how it is going to behave in the future, and then move on to the planning stage. During the planning phase, Donor emphasizes that you do not do anything, you just consider what you may do. Quoting from the text, the essence of planning is to think through the consequences of certain actions and see whether those actions will bring us closer to our desired goal, End quote. From here, Dorner explains that a way to approach this is to first consider individual actions, then mentally stringing individual actions together into sequences of action and consider the possible consequences of those choices. For this stage of the process, we can write things out or think things through or, in my example of considering starting or purchasing a business, formulate a draft for a business plan. The way Dorner visualizes this process is like links in a chain. Each link, if complete, should contain three elements. First is a condition element, second is an action element, and third is a result element. Quoting again from the text, given such and such conditions, it could take this or that action and achieve this or that result, end quote. Of course, there will always be things we do not know, and even when we do have most of the information we need, as variables interact with each other, things can develop in different ways. This is the nature of circumstances, and if we accept this and are prepared to adapt, we protect ourselves from being fixated on rigid expectations. Next, Dorner discusses the differences between forward planning and reverse planning. Forward planning is essentially what we have been discussing, where we establish at least a draft of our goal or goals and begin working out how we will accomplish them. In reverse planning, we simply work backwards from our goal. The example he provides is if someone wanted to take a train from Chicago to Boston, we could plan the trip by learning which trains arrive in Boston during a period which we would like to arrive, and work backwards from there, putting the pieces together until we have a trip scheduled. Quoting from the text, Dorner sums up the idea of reverse planning by stating, we can quite easily consider what conditions would have to prevail just prior to the desired goal in order for us to achieve that goal by means of a specific action. He also points out that this is not a matter of one method over the other. We can use both forward planning and reverse planning together as we plan our goals. With reverse planning, the crucial point is that our goal needs to be very specific. If our goals are not clear, we need to leave reverse planning shelved until we have done our due diligence. The question Dorner posts to put this in perspective is, what single action will result in the desired goal? Interestingly, reverse planning does not seem to be a natural path for many people. Dorner tells us that in mathematicians and logicians, reverse planning is often a standard method. But in his research, he reviewed 1,304 samples of participants thinking out loud, working on formal logic, and he tells us there was not a single example of reverse planning. And quoting from the text, he says, But because even moderately complex realities, such as puzzles, offer a multitude of transformation possibilities... And because both forward and reverse planning processes can branch out so widely, a complete investigation of an entire problem sector is utterly impossible. End quote. To illustrate this point, Doner explains that in the game of chess, in theory, there are a limited number of configurations, and therefore the number of possible moves and counter moves is limited. Because of this, it is theoretical that it would be possible to plan out an entire game completely. But because the number of possibilities is so large, no one can do this. Since the vastness of a complex system can be so large, he advises we narrow our focus. This brings us to our word of the day, which is heuristic. According to Merriam-Webster, heuristic is defined as involving or serving as an aid to learning, discovery, or problem solving by experimental and especially trial and error methods. Heuristic is introduced to us because Dorner tells his readers that the psychology of problem solving has identified heuristic devices for helping us narrow our focus. The first he brings to our attention is called hill climbing. Hill climbing is an analogy comparing hiking towards the summit of a hill to working directly step-by-step towards a specific goal. What hill climbing requires for our purposes is first visualizing and then acting on those actions which get us closer to our goal. It is worth saying that before we can approach this, the goal needs to be specific. Obviously, we cannot really work towards an unspecific goal, and one of the main themes in this book, one of the things Dorner has observed consistently in his research, is that unspecific goal setting leads to unspecific planning. Working with the analogy of hiking, Dorner cautions that the possible danger in applying hill climbing to goal achievement is that sometimes, our nearness to our goal can make us believe we are reaching the summit, when we may actually only be reaching a secondary peak. The analogy is a little confusing in the text, and it occurs to me that Dorner, living in Germany, is possibly used to easily accessible hiking. I used to live in Washington State, and I had very easy access to hiking. The most prominent view out the window of my parents' home when I was a kid was the Cascade Mountains. However, now I live in Texas, and while that has its charms, Mountains are not on the list. There are some hills in parts of the state, but I would say hills are not the daily experience of the average Texan. My point is it occurs to me this analogy can get pretty easily lost on anyone who either is not a hiker or does not have easy access to hills. His caution is that sometimes when a person is hiking, the steepness of the trail, which is his analogy to the nearness of the goal, can be deceiving if it is the only metric we are relying on. Hill climbing is useful, but we need other tools in our toolbox to better our chances of success. The reason why the steepness of a trail can be deceiving is that sometimes when one is hiking, a secondary summit may have a steeper approach than the actual summit. So if all the hiker is looking at is the steepness of the trail to determine if they are on the correct path, they can easily get off course. If we rely too much on our increasing closeness to our goal, we can experience this getting off course by accident. Dorner suggests that identifying intermediate goals helps. His suggestion is to identify intermediate goals using reverse planning. He also feels that we can identify intermediate goals even if they have a variety of possible outcomes. Finally, if we see no other options, Dorner suggests we can act on the basis of what has proven successful in the past. This has the benefit of narrowing our focus, although... He does caution that we do not want to default to a pattern only because it has worked in the past. This leads to an admission that he is not attempting to cover all of the different options one has when trying to solve complex problems. His point is that there are many ways to go about this, and I think his main point here is that regardless of the method we decide is most appropriate, a consistent theme between these varied strategies is they serve to narrow our focus. From the very beginning of this book, Dorner has expressed his observation that unspecific goals lead to random, unfocused work. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I talked about how what Dorner terms repair service behavior, where a person runs around fixing the problems that pop up and make the most noise, we might say the problems that squeak the most, leads to unfocused, unproductive, and ultimately ineffective work. Narrowing our focus and pursuing specific goals Is a constant theme in the book. I should probably add that narrowing our focus and setting specific goals comes after a period of observation and information gathering, not just decisive action. Returning to the text, Dorner reflects on how with all the ways available of narrowing our focus, how do we know which strategy to select? Flexibility is important here, and this brings us back to a discussion we had a week or two ago about being cautious about identifying too strongly with the strategy. A strategy is just a strategy. It doesn't have to become a way. You should select the strategy that seems most appropriate at the time and be cautious about labeling yourself by that strategy. Try, if you can, to get labeled as the person who gets things done. Now, why should you be concerned with this? There are two main reasons. One is because if you identify too strongly with a specific strategy, And in a different situation, you need to apply a different or an opposing strategy. It can make people think you're inconsistent. The second reason is setting expectations. This is important when you have employees, business partners, and it can be important with customers or clients as well. If the expectation is that you are going to do your research and apply the best strategy to the situation, that is what people will expect and the way will be smoother. If you plant your flag in a specific ideology and make a big deal out of it, that is what people are going to expect you to do. If you then realize you need to change gears, this is especially true if the previous pattern is one that has been in use for a long time, losing credibility is a real risk. Depending on what you are dealing with, you may not need to worry about it, but it will only help you to understand that people seem to crave labels. I think it makes it easier for people to process things if they can label them and put them on a mental shelf and try to keep them there. This is not always a good way to view things, especially other people. Bruce Lee famously said, when you label something, you kill it. Be aware that the people around you, even people who you are not specifically aware are judging your actions, will label you without even thinking about it. In my strength and conditioning career, if a coach mentions they have tried a certain method or nutrition strategy and gotten results with it, they can get labeled as a low-volume guy, a low-fat guy, a high-fat guy, whatever. All it takes is one comment or one article published, and instead of stimulating interesting conversation, labels get affixed. Once labels are affixed, change and growth are really hard. Getting back to the text. Dorner explains this a little differently. Quoting from the text, Methods for narrowing problem sectors make methods for expanding them necessary too. Narrowing a sector lets us operate in a surveyable field, but the possibility exists that we are in the wrong one. If a reasonable period of exploration leads us nowhere, we need, therefore, to consider changing our field, and there are several ways of doing that. End quote. The first method Dörner discusses for dealing with this narrowing and expanding of options is free experimentation. Essentially, considering every idea we can think of. The danger of this is that people can get stuck in their old ideas without realizing it. The next method is culling unsuccessful strategies. This is accomplished by first identifying the common features in unsuccessful strategies and then adopting strategies that do not have those features. Quoting from the text, if what we have tried so far has not worked, we need to cull the features of our unsuccessful actions and replace them with new ones. This, Dorner points out, can be difficult because people get fixed in their ways, or as I may phrase it, people get attached to their labels. The next method Dorner mentions is thinking by analogy. He relates how in his Greenville experiment, where participants were put in charge of the fictional town of Greenville... Whose main source of employment was the watch factory, one of the participants who started out concerned that she did not know anything about manufacturing drew an analogy between manufacturing watches and rolling cigarettes. That may seem like a stretch, but it worked, and it allowed that participant to get her head around the subject. After discussing this and revisiting the idea that while our objective is to narrow our focus, sometimes that will require that we expand our focus so we can work things out. Dorner advises that in the real world, these ideas can be difficult to apply. Quoting from the text, Time limits may force us to develop only crude plans or may curtail planning altogether. In addition, there are instances in which we should not overplan or even plan at all. Supporting this line of thought, Dorner translates a quote from Napoleon, one jumps into the fray, then figures out what to do next, quote. Ideally, Dorner feels the best strategy for complex and quickly changing situations is to develop a rough outline of a plan and then delegate as many decisions as possible to subordinates that have considerable autonomy. This can be difficult, one reason being that it seems that in stressful situations, people seem to revert to centralizing their power. He does provide an interesting statement from Graf von Moltke. If a general is surrounded by a number of independent advisors, the more of them there are, the more eminent they are, and the more intelligent they are, the worse his situation will be. The problem here is that the subordinates are not working independently on their own tasks, but competing with each other to create policy or the overall strategy, and trying to advance themselves in a more central way. Returning to the overall subject of doing what is appropriate at the time, Dorner tells his reader that, We can make plans that are too crude and plans that are too detailed. The trick is to plan with an appropriate degree of detail. But what is appropriate, he asks. The interesting thing is that people have a stronger tendency to overplan when they are more uncertain. That makes sense when you consider that someone who is overconfident can be prone to make snap judgments. In an earlier episode, we discussed how gathering too much information can make people feel uncertain. The essential point was that in some cases, the more someone learns, the more they may realize how little they know, and this gets stuck in a vicious circle a feeling like they need more information, growing more uncertain, need to learn a little bit more. Dorner does point out that if someone has enough time or enough experience in a subject, this will not be as much of a concern. But he has observed participants in his studies who grew increasingly uncertain the more questions they asked. Quoting from the text, looking closely at a problem often increases our insecurity, and a retreat into a minuscule but detailed planning process can help us feel we are applying the full force of our rational powers into the uncertainty of a situation while letting us put off the evil day of action. After all, we have to plan carefully before we act. End quote. In situations where overly detailed planning does not lead to greater insecurity, There can still be the danger of insecurity setting in if the planner believes they have planned for everything. This danger lies in when something inevitably goes wrong. Murphy's Law is a well known aphorism that states, If something can go wrong, it will go wrong. I think this can sound pessimistic the first time someone hears it, but the point is not so much to expect bad outcomes, but to not choke when something goes wrong. If we can accept in advance that there will be difficulties, When difficulties arise, we are more likely to just figure out a way to deal with them. In a way, this is in line with the Napoleon quote Dorner shared earlier. One jumps into the fray, then figures out what to do next. And he returns to this idea in the text. The way he phrases it is, If we approached our problem with Napoleon's motto in mind, expecting that something would surely go wrong, but that we would find a way to deal with those problems as they emerged, end quote. Keeping this approach in mind will put us in a better place. In the happy event that nothing goes wrong, we will be free to just follow our plans as they are laid out. Dorner closes this section of the text out by mentioning that he realizes crude planning is just as dangerous as overplanning, but he feels that the dangers of crude planning get more attention than overplanning does. Regarding the dangers of crude planning versus overplanning, he states, In both cases, the planner faced with the need to make a decision is driven by insecurity, From here, he returns to his idea of defining a planning unit as consisting of a condition element, an action element, and a result element. The actions we will carry out depend on the conditions that either exist or that we create. If we do not get the results we need, that might require additional actions. Dorner points out, that planning is much easier if we ignore the condition element and just assume that the action we take will produce the desired results. This is fairly easy for people to do, since in the first place, planning only requires imagining what we want. And since people have a tendency to think abstractly, ignoring condition requirements is much easier than defining conditions and making certain they are in place. When the conditions needed to execute our plans are not accounted for, It makes the planning process easier, but it shortcuts the action element. Interestingly, discounting the condition element can make explaining our plans easier, at least to an audience that does not understand the problem. As Dorner phrases it, our descriptions may conceal problems. I could see this section of the text being a bit frustrating to a reader, because after a long reminder about how planning too much can lead to insecurity, he is stressing that we need to identify as many conditions as possible to qualify the actions we need to take. I would say he is aware of this conflict, as he states several times throughout the text that nothing about dealing with complex problems is easy. He quotes Karl von Klauswich, In war, everything is simple, but it is the simple things that are difficult, end quote. Digging into this a little further, Dorner goes into some detail about what he terms frictions or little conditions that are easy to overlook, even by experts who are well-versed in their fields of study. This is important because in most of the research he has discussed, the challenges people have faced have mostly been study participants who were learning about a subject as they participated in the study. Some of them were able to draw from their own experiences to make good decisions, but some cases, such as the very beginning of the book, where he discusses the visiting economist and physicist, who worked together through his TanaLand program, even in that case of two educated professionals who knew what they were getting into and had the advantage of having a conversation with Dorner about how poorly quote-unquote other people often manage situations, they failed utterly. How can someone understand a subject and fail in the execution of it? These frictions or little conditions are a clue. Quoting from the text, it is when we have the big picture most in mind that we are most prone to forget the details. Well, personally, I relate to this. I am a big picture kind of guy. I am good at ideas. I am good at execution. I am horrible at details. When I have the luxury, I happily delegate details to other people. Returning to our text, Doner spend some time discussing the good and bad of falling into automatic habits. Many things that we do on a daily basis, we do almost automatically without giving them much deliberate thought. Have you ever driven to work and realized later that you did not remember anything about the commute? A variety of things can fall into this category. Relegating some of our activities like this saves us from thinking about every detail of our lives. That is the benefit. We probably get more done or have the opportunity to get more done because we have the capacity to put some actions on a kind of autopilot. But what is the cost? Can you guess? Dorner suggests the trade-off to this benefit is that it tends to blind us to new opportunities. In a study conducted by Abraham and Edith Luchens, participants were instructed to measure certain amounts of water using different sized water pitchers. I have discussed in a previous episode how many studies are set up with a misdirect, meaning In order for the study to get insight into the subject, the participants cannot really know what the study is about. In this example, the way the study was conducted, I imagine the participants believed they were being tested on how well they could figure out which order to fill the jugs in order to end with a certain amount of water. The first example Dorner provides is the participant was instructed to measure out three quarts of water. If they first filled a five-water pitcher, and then poured water from that pitcher into a smaller two-quart pitcher, that would leave exactly three quarts in the pitcher. The way the study was conducted, the participants were given a series of tasks, but the solution to each task followed the same sequence of events. To make it easier to understand, in the example I just gave, if we fill pitcher A, which is five quarts, and then pour that water into pitcher B, which is two quarts, that leaves exactly three quarts for pitcher C. It is explained a little different in the text, but for the purposes of audio without any data to look at, this will get the idea across. What happened was that the participants were given a series of tasks, and the solution to each task followed the same pattern. The participants had to figure out that part, of course, and that was the misdirect. After the participants had performed enough tasks to establish a pattern, from what the text says, that took five samples. The sixth task Had the possibility of a different solution. The key thing is that the same pattern that worked on the previous five samples still worked. It was just that on the sixth task, there was also a solution that was available in two steps instead of three. Dorner does not provide us with a breakdown of the results, but tells us that most of the participants did not see the easier solution, but relied on the pattern they had learned. An interesting quote from the text This is an example of how experience does not always make us smart. Experience can also make us dumb, End quote. There is a long quote in the text from mil- military strategist Karl von Clausewitz. I won't give the entire quote here, but trying to mine a couple of key points, he says, War is not an infinite mass of minor events. And a little later in the text, war consists rather of single, great, decisive actions, each of which needs to be handled individually. A longer quote from that section, War is not like a field of wheat, which, without regard to the individual stalk, may be mown more or less efficiently depending on the quality of the scythe. It is like a stand of mature trees in which the axe has to be used judiciously according to the characteristics and development of each individual trunk. The caution against relying too heavily on established methods is in part that it can cause us to overlook important details, what Dorner has called frictions and irritating conditions. The benefit to relying on established methods is that it can give us the confidence to attempt to solve a complex problem. All right, there is more to this interesting discussion, but I am out of words for the day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Literate Caveman. Thank you very much for listening. We will continue our discussion next week. Now, go read a book.